Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I like that. I like wittiness. I like the fact that you think you funny, but you ain't funny as me, so don't you worry about that. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, my daughter posted a photo of my dog Omar on Instagram to promote our last episode, and it got a bunch of likes. Does that make Omar an influencer? Wait, I thought that was Charlie. Yeah. That wasn't Charlie? Wasn't which one Charlie. is which? <laughs> what do you mean? Omar <laughs> is my pit bull. Uh, I think we have radically underutilized... Um, the power of your two dogs to give us a following on Instagram. We all know that that pets are just good Instagram draws, and our daughters are just not cute like they used to be. No. Like you know, like, <laughs> definitely so, not. Do you ever go and see old videos of? Oh God, I would love to spend just a week with her that age, like three dude, years the, old. For oh man. I know the passage of time is the biggest fucking curse of existence. Um, and I wish I had never been, <laughs> been born. It almost <laughs> makes you not want to have been born. Yeah. All right. So today on this episode, we are going to talk about um, a really interesting paper that I came across and I pitched to you called Poor People Lose Gideon and the Critique of Rights. So it's a paper that was part of a special issue of the Yale Law Journal on the case Gideon v. Wainwright. And it's the case that established that the defendant has a right to an attorney and the state has to pay for for the attorney if the defendant can't afford it. And um, this is a, this paper by Paul Butler argues that this right that was established through this Supreme Court case has done more harm than good towards addressing injustice, inequality, racial injustice. Um, provocative, Tamler. It is a provocative paper. It's part of a broader, it's not picking on the Gideon case. It's part of a broader critique of, of rights that the Gideon case serves as an example of. So it's a really interesting paper, and we'll talk about that in the second segment. But first, <laughs> you came across... So wait, somebody sent you on Twitter uh, because I know that both you and I have been asking ourselves, I, I, I really want to be an antinatalist. I'm just not sure how. We've talked about antinatalism. We have certain listeners who are 
urging us to talk about it more or to have David Benatar on, but antinatalism is the view that holds that it's better not to have been born. Um, you sh- it's a bad thing to bring new humans into the world and people should stop doing it. That it's unethical it's un- to have children given that it is yeah. an overall bad to exist. Yes. And we've not been impressed by the arguments for this position um, in the past. Although I think if you listen to the episode, I am far more sympathetic to the position. Yeah, um, that, than you. that's true. I think that I have no sympathy for the position <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. It trades on two different kinds of argument um, and it doesn't, it can't totally make up its mind which one it, it, it focuses on. So the first is this idea that even if you bring a being into the world that, that has a life of almost pure joy but suffers just a little bit, then that's, that's wrong. That's bad. That's you did an unethical right. thing because you have caused wrong to the world, and that's bad, but it, it's not good to bring a being in. The, I, like, I don't even, I forget how that works exactly. But that's the view. It's definitely the view. Um, right. And then the second part is that it just is, life offers more suffering than, than happiness for everybody pretty much right and and that and there there's an appeal to some of the psychological work on the negativity bias where like the negative events outweigh so like being tortured once is not equivalent to eating 100 pieces of chocolate cake like it doesn't right so there's like a an actual um subjective sense in which negativity dominates positivity which is as you say different than these just the straight up con- i think conceptual argument of the the first claim yeah. that even a bit of bad is is bad but this one's more like no i don't care what people say like overall like overall in a utilitarian calculus bad bad still dominates yeah. over good in in everybody's life and i could respect that argument if it was well if there was a, a lot of evidence for it i don't think there is i don't respect the little logical trick that they do to say that, you know, even if the being you bring into the world has 95% happiness and just a little bit of suffering, then you still have done the wrong thing. Right. And uh, yeah, people really should listen, listen to our episode because I think we, ta- we tackle a bit the, psych- the, the like empirical, the, the empirical part. And like, let me just say, it's also, I think, tossed in usually with um, what is a reasonable uh, claim that that you know there are too many you know that overpopulation is a problem and that like we should be vigilant about about you know how many people we create which i think is totally reasonable doesn't require antinatalism to defeat it yeah the thing that really annoys me about it and it annoys me about and this is a general thing that annoys me about certain kinds of arguments that take themselves to be controversial and counterintuitive is that when people object to them, they just say, oh, well, you're like a birth giver, so of course you're going to object to it. Um, right. You can't... Which is... <laughs> which, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the easy... That's the easy <laughs> ad, ad hominem 
Um, or, I mean, maybe in some cases it's right. Um, uh, given that you hinge a lot of your philosophical arguments on the existence of your daughter, maybe in your case in particular, it's clear that you're completely biased and motivated. <laughs> in my case, my motivation is might actually be that in the sense that I kind of agree that having never been born, um, if one can make a coherent statement about a preference preference for not having existed, which that's arguable, that maybe that is better than having been born, um, as your joke about the two Jews on the bench. <laughs> Who has such a luck, maybe one in a thousand. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's on my dad's gravestone. We put it on. Uh, really? Yeah. My brother and I, uh, we had to put something on his gravestone, and we put, but who has such a luck, maybe one in a thousand. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> um, so so I, I feel I feel mildly guilty having brought a child into the world and i know that the joy that she brings me is is a part of my sloppy patchwork to make my existence feel better wait Um, really yeah you really feel guilty about bringing bella into the world i mean in some sense for the sake of this particular argument there are times in which i do feel guilty about bringing uh, a child into the to the world like especially when i contemplate the existential suffering that comes about from my own, for instance, fear of death and suffering at the death of others to think that I might have brought this upon another creature makes me sad, but I am quickly convinced by, uh, by just the sheer pleasure that she brings me. And so I, I know that I'm motivated. <laughs> so wait, uh, I, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Does no, that you mean... shouldn't be surprised because I expressed this in the other episode. No, you didn't say specifically about. I didn't think you thought said that about your child, but maybe you did. But like, let me ask you this. Yeah. Does this mean you wouldn't have another child for that reason? No, no, no. Because that would mean that I'm driven by my principles. Uh, <laughs> so you're an antinatalist, essentially. <laughs> um, well, like I say, this is at, at times I feel this, and at times I clearly don't. So this is why I feel like it is it like I I don't feel as if the that that I can be persuaded by the the complete principle uh that it is unethical to have a child. I can be persuaded by the all things being equal you're running the risk of bringing in more suffering than happiness right. into the world and that's sad. That would be sad to me. Like you could, you, you're, it's like the lottery. You could have like a depressed kid. and like, Right, right, right. So yeah. that, if, if someone wants to make that argument, which is not the antinatalist argument, like no, that the chances right. of having like a depressed child, a child that suffers crippling anxiety, a child that, you know, like that's, then I, I could uh, be open to that. But I feel like that the antinatalist cases that I've heard haven't made, um, haven't done that. But since you at least have a side of you that's sympathetic to this argument, you may be curious as how you are going to live. So as an antinatalist and... um, But in particular, I'm curious um, for somebody to tell me via illustration because I don't don't feel like reading. (laughs) So there's a a WikiHow, which is a website pretty much that just tells you how to do stuff right like how to put together yeah. like uh 
Like how to tie a tie, which I always have to look up. Yeah. Know, okay. And so there is a wiki how, that, and then and my, a f- listener on Twitter uh, that I can't find anymore uh, drew this to my attention. And this is hilarious, I think. The pictures, so we got to put a link to this in the notes, and you have to, <laughs> I would look at it as we talk about it, because I think uh, we're not going to be able to at- describe <laughs> <laughs> the comedy of the pictures. That's right. So there is. Uh, so the step one <laughs> is just a, a, this doctor talking to a uh, woman, <laughs> like a. Wait, hold on. There, let me let you. We just say there are eleven steps all there yeah. with like a paragraph and an illustration. Yeah, and the illustrations <laughs> are huge. Um, and in this one, it's a, a female doctor and a and a woman. And it just says, and this is this makes sense. Do not start any additional lives. If you have not yet had children, do not have any. If you have had children, don't have any more. So, Dave, do not allow yourself to procreate either deliberately or quote by accident. That that one is like a interesting. Like don't <laughs> don't don't do anything by accident. <laughs> I I also like why do the quotes around by accident like what is that maybe because philosophically it'd be incoherent to ask somebody not to have an accident so the point like is, by definition like, you cannot intend to yeah. right the, the point is that people who have accidents are just irresponsible it's, yeah. it's sort of willful irresponsibility yeah. or at least epistemically knowledgeable take complete responsibility for contraception remain celibate <laughs> bullshit or seek an early abor- abortion just as they say, let sleeping dogs lie, allow the uncreated to m- remain in their undifferentiated, painless state. Right. Which you're, we're already bordering on the incoherence of talking about the identity of an uncreated being. <laughs> right. You want to describe the second picture? Yeah. Okay. So the second one is this, uh, a, a woman reading, reading a book. <laughs> Paragraph says, learn about antinatalism, read the book Better to ne- Never to Have Been, The Harm of Clinging to Existence by David Benatar. This book will explain the logic behind the philosophy of antinatalism and continue to read other online articles and book reviews about antinatalism. Because listen to podcasts about it. Listen to podcasts that might challenge it, if dismissively. <laughs> Consider how your antinatalism will express itself. Be forewarned that this is a misunderstood and unpopular philosophy calling into question, as it does, the very meaning of human existence. Be discreet and consider the potential social, familial, employment, and religious ramifications in your life. Yeah, it's just telling you to proceed cautiously. Yeah, which is good good advice in general if you have any unpopular beliefs. <laughs> right. Like, vegans and meditators racists like <laughs> it's not that unpopular um, <laughs> here again there's just like a picture of two women talking to each other yeah um but one of them is black one of the so that, yeah that's the only uh, yeah. woman of color that is in uh, the other one is asian yeah there is yeah. An asian. um then then the second one is two women talking to each other Discuss the philosophy with other people. Is it all women? Once you feel it's it's all women. Uh, maybe yeah. That's, oh, that's, that's unwittingly like because they're the ones to make the decisions. That's unwittingly sexist. Sexist, but with an attempt to be non-sexist. I bet. Um, discuss the philosophy with other people once you feel confident and conversant with the anti-natalist philosophy as a person who was born yourself. Right. Yeah. As a person who was born yourself. 
as opposed to all those <laughs> stick up for the moral right of those who would not want to be born see this is uh, it's just <laughs> the way they're talking about it right now it just doesn't make sense yeah i mean and maybe you know I'm sure David Bandhart tries to address some, sure. some of this stuff directly. But I should say, like, I, I actually don't know how many, like, do any other philosophers actually take this position? Like, I feel like he's a lone voice in the wilderness. Like, even the hardest core consequentialist probably doesn't take this position. No, I mean, I think the consequentialist takes it from the consequentialist perspective. Like, are you, yeah. what are the odds that you're... The person that's going to be born is going to have more happiness than suffering. Right. And then make your decision right. based on that. That makes sense to me. Uh, <laughs> so we should run through. We don't have to go through no. all of these specifically, like, but because the last few are all sort of like general advice, I think, like about how to live a good life yourself. Uh, but the last one, we got to talk about the last one. <laughs> <laughs> don't be a downer. And they might as well just say a Debbie Downer because it really is yeah. all women. Uh, <laughs> don't be a, a downer. While the antinatalist philosophy is often considered to be against sentient human life, recognition of the misfortune of having been born does not relegate you to dourness, suffering, complaining, or misery. Antinatalists can be as happy as the next person, yet still recognize that everyone's suffering could be obviated if those people had never been born in the first place. Still, once a person has been born, they may as well make the best of a bad situation. Pursue pleasure for yourself and others and avoid contributing to suffering. Like in one of the earlier pieces of advice, it was like, you know, like people might think that you're actually like suicidal and we wouldn't want that to be the case. Yeah. Like, so, so be like a good, a good uh, proponent of this. <laughs> a cheerful person that says it sucks that all of us have been born and we can't let any, we should try our yeah. best not. Yeah. I'll tell you what I am swayed by uh, that, that um, um, it's not clear to me that a universe in which no sentient beings ever existed is, is not better than one in which they did. <laughs> Like, because there again, I think I'm just calculating the odds of of like sort of utilitarian pain and suffering. But I also think that that like once you know the eventual demise of our species, if if that does occur, which probably will, like uh, at some point, that you know that might be better. Like I, I have a little bit of sympathy for supervillains whose goal it is to like destroy the world. You know, <laughs> I didn't know any of or, this about you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, and you're not a downer for the most part. No, I'm trying to be happy so that you'll be convinced. Yeah, so, you know, I try to get good sleep and eat right. And <laughs> well, the antinatalist philosophy is often considered to be against sentient human life. I mean, I don't know why <laughs> they don't want bring it into existence, and they're constantly bemoaning the fact that they're sentient. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so I know that you hate the more. No, I mean you hate the Marvel. No, no I was oh, going to say the Marvel movies. Yeah. Thanos, which is the big, the big villain. Um, he actually has something like this philosophy. But he his goal is to destroy half of all uh, beings in the universe so that it will like minimize the suffering. No, no spoilers, but that's his main goal. He's like. You know, like I, I, I get, I get it. Anyone get who's it. ever gonna see that has already seen it, right? <laughs> uh, They're not no, holding. I, I don't know. Yeah, let's just say that he was successful. Okay. 
here's the best thing I'll say about antinatalism. The last book, famous last book of the Iliad, Achilles and Priam, the father of Hector, are um, having a meal together. They're enemies. Achilles has just killed Hector. They both talk about how human life is just suffering. We're the, we're the playthings of the gods. The gods love, love to figure out you know, new ways for us to suffer existentially. And there's something very moving and poignant and that speaks to a kind of existential misery that only human beings can experience, a kind of anguish that, yeah, I mean, that does a lot more to make me pessimistic about the human experience than than it, than the antinatalist philosophy but uh, right I, I feel the same way about the book of job and and to some extent the book of ecclesiastes uh, we have to do ecclesiastes uh, I, I, I i i we just read that and i i i signed it in my intro to ethics class for the first time it's freaking phenomenal it's so interesting it's, am- it's amazing and what's hilarious to me is that it's like appended at the beginning at the end with like clearly somebody who was like by the way like solomon was totally awesome after this yeah. and he was like yeah god is yeah, awesome yeah follow god's <laughs> law forget all the like that was his conclusion forget all the don't, nihilism don't. that was just like it's it, we have to talk about ecclesiastes at some point <laughs> Hell yeah, I'd love to, man. It's my, I think it's my favorite book of the Bible. It's, it's really interesting. This, yeah, this was motivated, by the way, by an article also um, oh, that, that yeah. was about a guy who's suing his parents t- for being born, which could be another discussion, but I don't know that it's worth saying anything other than, well, then I guess everybody could do that and <laughs> the whole system would fall apart. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't have the article in front of me, but. I, I like the. It seemed a very weird thing where the parents were sort of taking it in stride, and yeah, the parents are both lawyers, and they're like, "If he wants to take us to court, like, let it go, like, yeah. go for it. It's great." <laughs> Part of me thinks that there is a bit of performance art to the antinatalism, like movement that they know that there's something ridiculous about it and the way they're presenting it. And this, the thing that made me think that was this WikiHow, like. Yeah, but this in, isn't in, like. Is this really meant to be serious? Like, we're not supposed well, in, to in, laugh at this. In defense, in the, in defense of the antinatalists, I think pr- I'm pretty sure that Wiki Howe's existence is entirely explained by exploiting what people search for in Google, and then writing articles based on that in order to get ads um, that get click throughs. So, like, they'll actually figure out what what are the questions that people are asking, like how to tie a tie, and then quickly write a, a story on on WikiHow in order to do it. So there must have been some substantial like uh, number of people typing in like what is antinatalism for them to write. So you like, don't think an antinatalist like, wrote this? Are they, no, because I don't know. I, I mean, no, maybe. I don't know. I mean, maybe or maybe somebody who knows the arguments wrote it, but. How surprised would you be if it turned out that this was all some kind of meta bit of performance art? The, the just the whole antinatalism. You thing. mean like like the restorative justice movement? Oh, is? stop! <laughs> <laughs> um, now we're talking about like real issues. Yeah, no, no. Um, I I I withdraw my statement, Your Honor, about restorative justice. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't think David Benatar is a, a performance artist, but I think this is the ultimate in the Venn diagram between emo and analytic philosophy. <laughs> like <laughs> right. this captures it. Like this is the best. Like, like let me put on some fucking eyeshadow, pierce myself, and say that like it's better to never have been born. <laughs> like there, you can't. Like it is the ultimate in marketing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a perfect way of describing it. Life is suffering, man. Fuck you. Asymmetry <laughs> argument. <laughs> I, non-identity is not a problem. All right. All right. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about something that actually matters. <laughs> like I want to like have Depeche Mode playing in the background of our... <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Eero. Life is too short for bad Wi-Fi. Here's the thing. The single router model just doesn't work for our increasingly high bandwidth world. It's simple physics. Like light waves, Wi-Fi waves don't go through walls well. Imagine asking a light bulb in your living room to light your master bedroom. Okay, light bulb in the living room. Will you light my master bedroom? No. First of all, you don't even have a master bedroom. It's just a room. It barely has a closet. It's not a master bedroom. Second of all, I'm a light bulb, and I can't go through walls. It's simple physics. Third of all, I can't even talk. So you're having this conversation with yourself, which is really fucking weird. Point is, you need a distributed system, which is what offices have had for years. So the people over at Eero introduced the Eero home Wi-Fi system, bringing the idea of multiple access points placed throughout a house to consumers for the first time. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android devices, and it'll walk you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. I did it. I'm recording this from my garage apartment that never used to get Wi-Fi, and now it does. It works fantastic. It's like magic. Eero has been a boon for the Summers family. Hallelujah! Not only can I record the podcast up here, but we're now actually living in the garage apartment. And thanks to Eero, we can still watch Netflix shows and not engage with each other as a family. Eero also comes with Eero Plus. Eero Plus is designed to provide simple, reliable security that defends all your home's devices against a growing number of threats such as malware, spyware, phishing attacks, as well as unsuitable content for your miners. Eliza, you hear that? Eero Plus includes total network protection, the ability to block malicious and unwanted content throughout your entire network, advanced security, it checks the sites you visit against a database of millions of known threats. Content blocking, Eero Plus automatically tags sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content. So you can choose what your kids can and cannot visit right in the Eero app. Ad blocking, get rid of those annoying ads and pop-ups on all your devices. Third-party security apps, VPN protection, password management for one from 1Password, antivirus software from Malwarebytes. So, never think about Wi-Fi again, and we have a special offer for our listeners. Get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. To do that, visit Eero.com slash VeryBadWizards, and at checkout, enter VeryBadWizards. Once again, go to Eero.com slash VeryBadWizards, and at checkout, enter VeryBadWizards for 
$100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. Thanks to Eero for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, this is the time, the very predictable time in the episode where we like to thank everybody for their support. Um, we have really enjoyed all of the the commentary, the communication, the Twitter email, and everything else in the discussions. Um, matter of fact, I just recently was asked by by a couple different people like um, how we get ideas for the show, and I was like, well, a lot of it, a lot of it nowadays comes from listeners because. Yeah, we're very limited in our creativity sometimes. <laughs> um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. We promise we read them all. It's just hard to answer to them all. Hope you, We hope you understand that. Um, you can tweet to us at verybadwizards or at Tamler or at Peas. Uh, you can also engage in discussion uh, with... Uh, either us or people who listen to the show on the subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards or on Facebook, which is just Very Bad Wizards. You can follow our Instagram account. And if you uh, would like to support us, you could also give us an iTunes review. Um, you can just go to iTunes and, and either just give us a rating or actually write a review. We think that helps people find us um, when they're looking for podcasts about the kind of stuff we talk about. And we love the reviews. And we do love the reviews. Uh, they're very funny, um, often. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you want to support us in more tangible ways that we always very much appreciate, um, we, we do this gig out of love, and we did it for years um, out, of, out of pocket. And we are very lucky to have enough supporters who do go out of their way to support us. And we're so, so appreciative. You can just easily go to our... Uh, support page on verybadwizards.com um and there you can find the various ways in which you can support us for one you can simply click on our amazon link and shop as you normally would and we get a little piece of that which we really appreciate you could donate to us via paypal which we also really appreciate and that actually is how many of our international listeners um get get to support us um and i, I feel like i don't give them or we don't give them enough love uh for for that yeah and uh I, I almost want to write a special email to everybody who's done that. Um, and almost. Um, almost. <laughs> I do want I do want it, but as I said, I'm very unmotivated by principles. Um, and finally, you can go to our Patreon page and support us. Um, you get a few perks. We really very, very much appreciate our Patreon supporters, so we try to do special things for them. We um, are we, pr we promise I don't I don't mean to chuckle after promise because we are going to record very soon an extra patreon uh, bonus episode it might even be 
on Star Trek. For the years. inner light, uh, right? The inner light. Yeah. Yeah. Um, arguably one of the best episodes. Um, yes. Thank you very much. And so let's, uh, so this, this, uh, segment, we're going to talk about a paper called poor people lose Gideon and the critique of rights. It's by Paul Butler, a law professor at Georgetown, author of a hip hop theory of justice, a long paper. That's also really interesting. Um, so the reason I pitch this, I'm teaching a course on the philosophy of punishment now, as I do, I don't know, roughly every couple of years. It sounds like a sexy course. <laughs> philosophy of punishment. No, no, uh, not that You've kind been of a punishment. bad boy. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, no, it's on the criminal justice, which is not. Sexy, but we started out doing as as one does in these courses the standard retributivism versus utilitarianism debates. It's a, it's a debate that analytic philosophers love. There's a lot of cases and appeals to intuition and general principles versus particular cases. Cases reflective equilibrium. Original position comes in. You know the Rawlsian original position. What kind of institution of punishment would you pick on a, uh, behind the veil of ignorance? And so we're doing this, and I and I kind of confess to the class that that I was feeling a little bad at the level of abstraction in the literature that we were reading, given what's actually happening in the American criminal justice system. It just seemed to bear no resemblance, even though it was on the topic of criminal punishment and what justifies it and what is the best approach to, to have towards punishment. And so I sort of confessed this to the class. That, you know, one of my students was like, well, you know, this is a philosophy course. You shouldn't feel bad about assigning philosophy <laughs> in a philosophy course. But, you know, so but after that, and I had planned to do this anyway, but I bumped it up a little bit. I had them listen to Serial Season 3, um, a few episodes of that. Did you listen to that? Which is about no. just like a year of what goes on at the Cleveland jails and courthouses. And it just follows a bunch of different cases. It's not really one story. It's really good at unveiling the mechanics of how criminal justice actually works. Most galling of all, and this is not Cleveland, this is everywhere, the fact that 97% of cases are are plead out. They don't result in a trial. They result in plea bargains. And often the plea bargaining is prosecutors just adding on really scary charges to get them to plea to something lesser just to not take the risk that they would go to trial and all of a sudden go to prison for six years for doing barely anything at all. So so, you know, I wanted to at least keep in mind how things actually function as as we go through the philosophy. And I was also looking for articles that address this disconnect between theory and practice. And this was one that I came across. It's a paper on rights discourse in America, and in particular in the criminal justice system, although it extends beyond the criminal justice system to education. And it's on this case, Gideon v. Rainwright from 1963, that ruled, it's a Supreme Court case, that ruled that states had to offer defense counsel to defendants who couldn't afford them. 
And the thesis of the essay is that the Gideon case and the right that it established hasn't addressed and alleviated racial injustice, the unequal treatment of poor and rich people in American criminal justice. Not only has it not addressed it or improved it, on the contrary, it bears some responsibility for legitimizing the way that black people and poor people are treated in the justice system and has diffused political resistance to this system. May have even worsened their plight. Yeah. And it's making the broader point that so when the progressive movement, when they focus on rights discourse, that's misguided and that it may do more harm than good in furthering progressive causes. This general point extends even to landmark rulings like Brown versus Board of Education, for example, or the Miranda ruling, Miranda versus Arizona, and a lot more of these rights that we're sort of brought up thinking are incredible signs of progress. And it's saying, no, it's not. It's actually doing more to legitimize the status quo than it is helping the cause of the people it is trying to help. All right. Yeah. So there's a, just a couple of things I want to say about your 25 minute intro. Um, <laughs> the, the article doesn't explain the Gideon v. Wainwright ruling. So, so if you are going to read this, which we'll link to it, um, just quickly hop over to Wikipedia and read that ruling because I think that because this was in a special issue about that decision, there, yeah. it seemed like there, there was no point in doing it. But as a standalone article, at first I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, what is it? It's not nearly as famous as Miranda or Brown v. Board of Education. Um, but uh, the second thing is, I, you're, you're right that this is a more, it's trying to make a more general critique, but it does specifically pick on Gideon v. Wainwright. And like all, all of the arguments that make the meat of this uh, well, not all of them, but the bulk of them are directed specifically at the right. the Gideon. Yeah, so you're right. It, it applies the critique of rights to Gideon. It would be less interesting if you just thought of this as, well, this right, like, I, I don't know. For me, Brown versus Board of Education, the fact that this general critique is supposed to extend to something like that it's a striking, counterintuitive, yeah. controversial kind of claim. And that I didn't know that people argued this. So he, he summarizes um, the, you know, he's talking about sort of the mass incarceration of poor and, and black people. And I think this is an important, important point to make for people who, who are not going to read but only listen to this. Um, he says, look, I'm not in this paper going to try to disentangle poor and black because the truth of the matter is it's poor people, black people, poor black people. Um, and it's hard to know whether black people are affected by the criminal justice system more because they tend to be poor or because they're, they tend to be poor because they're black. So he says, like, for now, like, let's just talk about the problem that applies to um, way, extremely disproportionately black people and poor people. And the problem is the way crazy rates of incarceration just in general in the country, but specifically disproportionately for uh, black people. So the geographical areas that tend to have more black people are, are more enforced. There are more police stops and arrests made there. 
appeals to explicit and implicit bias and uh, prosecution, as you said, the, the coercive nature of guilty pleas and this like sort of twisted Pascal's wager of like, like threatening people with like extreme negative outcomes so that they'll plea out and the cycle that this causes that once you're in, once you're in the system, yeah. it's very, very hard to get out of it. So relating to Gideon, before the case in 1960, 43% of the prison population was poor, and now it's 80%. Um, 660 out of 100,000 black men were in prison in 1960 before Gideon, and now it's over 3,000. Black-white incarceration, black versus white uh, proportion, is, is now 7 to 1 where it was a little over three to one before then. This was a striking stat. More than two-thirds of black males who do not have college degrees will be incarcerated at some point in their lives. So clearly, granting the right to an attorney didn't solve the problem. So the problem has grown, and if it were merely granting the right to an attorney that that was the root of the problem, then... If granting all these rights is supposed to have made shit better, then why is shit so much worse, right? And, and so there's a weaker claim where you could just say this right and other rights like it, the Miranda right, it's a, it's a first step, but it's not going to do the work all on its own. And then there's the stronger claim, which I think he makes, which is yeah. more controversial. It's not controversial. I don't think anybody would deny the, the weaker claim. The, the stronger claim is that it's actually done more harm than good, that it's made certain developments easier for certain people right. to defend. I think that, we, right, he's saying that it has substituted out, like, in this general focus on the rights by by what he, he says the progressive left is hyper-focused on, has led people to ignore problems that they otherwise might not have ignored. Yeah. Um, which I do think is a contentious claim, and and I'm not I'm not convinced. Um, but but why don't you go through the rights, uh, the general critique of rights that he, yeah. The first is that the discourse of rights is is less useful in securing progressive social change than liberal theorists and politicians assume. Legal rights are in fact indeterminate and incoherent. Yeah, I didn't understand the incoherent part. but I, Yeah, I don't either, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the use of rights discourse stunts human imagination and mystifies people about how law really works. This, to me, I think is the, the strongest claim. The fourth is, at least as prevailing in American law, the discourse of rights reflects and produces a kind of isolated individualism that hinders social solidarity and genuine human connection. This is when I knew I knew you had a boner as soon as I read that. Like this, this is just like I was like, well, "Justice okay, boner." Here's why Tamler wanted it. Yeah, exactly. I, I and I and I wish there was more on this in the paper. There's not. There's a little bit on it, but there's not enough. And finally, that rights discourse can actually impede progressive movements for genuine democracy and justice. And I think this is that stronger claim that we were just talking about. Um, one thing just to put in a slightly broader context, and then we'll dive into the specific argument. I think this is of a piece with a kind of Marxist view of how ideology arises 
as a means of preserving the status quo. So a lot of these high-minded principles are put forth mm. to protect unequal power structures, but not for that not to be transparent in the principles. The principles are the, supposedly these transcendent moral principles. The reason they actually emerge is to protect the unequal power structures that are in place. I think this is of a piece with that in the sense that a lot of these rights that are established are high-minded principles that, in fact, make it easier for the unequal status quo to be maintained. Right. That, so that makes sense. That actually, that actually helps understand what's, what's motivating this. So the critique of rights in general that has impeded progressive movement so so here let's get it like let's get into the maybe if i can say any like a, a just overall um my overall view before we get into the nitty-gritty this is a paper where i found i found completely convincing about the disparity completely convincing about the inability of a rights-based legislation and discourse to have um, reversed some of these problems. I'm not convinced that the case has been made that that the causal that there's a causal link. Um, but that and I think that's the important piece of of his argument because I like it's sort of like I agree with almost everything um, that is being said except for the critical part uh, that it is, for instance, that the impediment that, uh, that it's actually an impediment. Yeah, that like I, you know, I found it hard to think of like, well, if if Gideon had never been decided that way, would this have motivated people to find other other solutions? Yeah, that and that's my class was kind of split on this issue too. The problem with even evaluating that is we can't like go back in time and imagine an alternate yeah. universe where it hadn't been decided. You know, you could imagine maybe things would be even worse if right. uh, the Gideon case. That's exactly right, yeah. right. That's like a, a very, very clear case in which like, so, so just showing that things are worse than they used to be doesn't mean, right, that they wouldn't be even worse yeah. um, it, without these decisions. Yeah. Um, but let's 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 yeah. uh, read his case because I do think there is some evidence for the view that it's been an impediment. Well, the first is those basic facts, right? So that the fact that things have gotten so much worse since the case. So it's clear, like that, that it was intended to make things more fair, right? Like, there's no, I don't think there's any argument right. that, like, saying everybody should have a right to an attorney right. was intended to improve things. And so prima facie, the not only lack of improvement, but like the clear opposite uh, trends. Right. So um, what it did was it gives poor people lawyers, but that wasn't the goal. That, the en that wasn't the ultimate end. The ultimate end right. was for them to be treated less unjustly by the system. And, and in fact, the opposite have ha has happened. So having a lawyer is small consolation. And and let me just give an example of an example that was sort of striking from serials. They had an, a, a case of a public defender, and it was a totally trumped up charge. It was somebody who hit a cop by accident. This is from the first episode. And there was a lot of social pressure within the courthouse for him to accept a, a misdemeanor plea, even though he thought, she thought, Everybody thinks when they're 
hearing about the case that she didn't do anything wrong at all and shouldn't have been arrested in the first place, that there was pressure on him to just convince her to accept a plea so that he doesn't seem like an obstructionist. And if he doesn't do that, maybe he doesn't get a lot of cases thrown his way next time. So the fact that she had a lawyer here, and this lawyer is sort of part of this social network of prosecutors and judges and other defense attorneys. Now, in this case, it ended up working, I guess, okay. But in this case, his interests aren't exactly aligned with her interests. I think that's actually, that's a, that's a compelling argument for a, p- a possible causal link, um, or at least at best, inert, that having a lawyer is, in some cases, damaging, in some cases, inert, in some cases, be- beneficial. It's, it's, um, it's like the system figures out a way to fuck the people. Even, like, and you just give them a lawyer. So, okay, now we'll fuck you right. with a lawyer. Whereas before we were fucking you without a lawyer. Right. I don't know if this is obvious, but the American, uh, you mentioned this, the, the American criminal justice system is, is not a system of trials anymore. It is, not at all. It is very, very rare that people go to trial. I think it's uh, between 3 and 4% of cases go to go trial. Go to trial? Yeah. Uh, In fact, one of the alternatives that is suggested at the end of this paper is to get defendants somehow to coordinate (laughs) going to trial. This was proposed by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, and that would just crash the system. I mean, I've talked to lawyers about this. If 10% of cases went to trial, the system would just collapse. This is like, uh, do you know what a DDoS attack is, like a distributed (laughs) denial of system attack? on a website no is if you want to bring down a website you just get a like a bunch of computers to visit the website in a way that is completely right. un unpredicted by the by the server yeah, exactly so, that's yeah i mean that's the kind of alternative approach that you might consider but that has its own problems we'll talk about that at the end because that's the last part of the paper there's there are a couple things though that actually th- threw me off what is the evidence that actually having an attorney actually makes a difference in your sentencing or in your um, conviction rates. And he ends up citing more evidence that, that it does make a difference than that it doesn't. Right? But one thing about that data is, so, so let me think about this, but I think the idea might be that it's consistent with the view that as an individual, it is better for you to have a public appointed attorney than not to have one. But as a whole, having this right might be on the whole harmful for poor and black communities, even if it is helpful in a particular case for an individual because of other bits of collateral damage that it does. Right, so you could imagine that quality of attorney has no no real effect on poor and black uh, defendants. So there's so, two different things. There's the quality of attorney. Like the right doesn't grant like that you yeah. get like Johnny Cochran. It grants that you get an attorney. Yeah. There is a law that says that if your attorney is incompetent then you sh- you get you're allowed to get it replaced, but as he points out this is never happened. Like, it's a pretty low bar. And and this is part of the indeterminacy of the right. So this is a broader critique of rights that they're indeterminate. It's hard to know when they're observed and when they're not. 
and there are famous cases of defense attorneys falling asleep during trials. There's, <laughs> um, and and yeah. so well, it's like, but he did get an attorney. It just he was just not a good attorney. And then if you say if you establish well, they have to be a competent attorney. Well, what counts as a competent attorney? There is that Mississippi case where they would, so the way they would get an attorney is the, the attorney that bid the lowest would take it for yeah, the it was, least amount of money. It's Georgia. Oh, it's Georgia, um, sorry. It, yeah, yeah. And, and it's you know one of these cases where the system sort of self-organizes in a, in a way that fucks people. It's where the attorney who, who agrees to, to low bid is the one who gets it. <laughs> and so it's very hard to know, and these things can get wrapped up in their own bureaucratic legal struggles like you establish this right to counsel but like how do we know what that when that's been fulfilled and when it's and and both in spirit and in letter and how do we not and this is just a problem with rights in general yeah and and here's where i think that that there is um a bit of slippage there is one an argument that the gideon case simply isn't implemented well. So there are many there are many ways in which you could say like, well, the law is the law. Um, and in some cases, it's just uh, applied very, very poorly. Right. And so so things are underfunded. It, do, it doesn't get supported in the way that it, that it ought to. Um, so it's just like, uh, you know, people aren't aren't actually granting the right. Um, even though it is it is legally. So, um, right. That's the alternative view is that it's good that we have the right. It's just that we're not implementing it properly. And once we implement it properly, it will make the kind of progress that people were hoping it would make. The counter argument is that there is something about rights as a, a rights discourse and the movement to grant people rights where this will always happen. The system will figure out a way to grant the letter of the right, but still commit the same injustices that it's committing before because the same forces are in play, the same economic forces, the same, uh, you know, whatever, racial bias. There's something about this way of approaching it that will always result in it being implemented um poorly right. because it's so abstract is the idea right yeah and and again butler is fair when i think he concedes that in some cases it's very much not abstract it's very much right so it's sometimes you know i was like well no i mean it does without the law it could very well be possible that there are tons of people without any hope of getting a lawyer um and in in that way it is con concrete um in many cases um but to again to be charitable to this argument it is quite possible that this let led i think he's critiquing the the progressive left this led us to rest on our laurels yeah and that we're just not working and i i don't like i don't personally think that this is a feature of rights based discourse but rather just the potential feature of many any sort of legal solution to what might be sort of street level injustice like the poor will get fucked whether or not um this was framed as a right or whether it was um you know some other law like i i think that this is this is often just a problem of getting 
getting the spirit of any law to work its way into the real sort of nitty-gritty of, say, policing. This is where it would help to have an alternative. Yeah, exactly. More of a fleshed-out alternative to rights discourse. So what wouldn't suffer from some of these issues? Um, Right. So actually, I wanted to ask you this, um, because Butler is saying at some point, you know, this is the problem with focusing on procedural justice um, rather than on the justice of, say, outcomes. And I've always thought this is the case. And, uh, you know, I don't know anything about the legal discussion about this, but I do know that there is work in the psychology um, of justice where people have argued now for for a long time, uh, I think I'm doing it justice, this work by Tom Tyler, that procedural justice is what what we need to focus on because that's what actually makes people, um, right? Like the feeling that a fair process has occurred is what's important for, for people to be, um, like to, to feel good about how things. Yeah, and this is arguing exactly the opposite. And it's arguing exactly, or it's arguing that yes, I very much agree with oh, you. Oh, right. Yeah. It's right. It's just that that uh, that it ends there. Everybody has the feeling that justice has occurred, but nothing, yeah. in fact, has has changed. And, and I've always had that feeling about the work on on right. So that it's procedural justice, and in that literature, the argument has always been like, yeah, yeah, this is what we need to focus on. But I, I've always felt like well, that seems like a fucked right. up thing to focus on. Like. Like, yeah, I feel like I got heard by a judge. But if you really presented me evidence that every time I got heard by a judge, um, they decided against me versus uh, versus a world in which not getting heard by a judge, but I didn't get like yeah. fucked. <laughs> like I would pick the world in which I didn't no, get fucked. That's right. And that's you the just... idea of focusing on needs rather than rights. Like, no, you're right. Exactly. The the When people feel like the process was fair, they just stop asking whether you know right. the outcomes are fair and they feel like well justice is done and this is part of that mystification i think of the what rights discourse might do and especially since a lot of rights are procedural rights that it might give the illusion of fairness where it's not actually there it's not the fairness that I, that you really actually want. Yeah. And it, it is hard to see what you could say as an individual who gets arrested, say, but you read your Miranda rights. Yeah. You didn't have, like, there was a clear, clear, in quotes, probable cause for getting stopped, right? Because they actually argued it successfully. Um, you were read your Miranda rights. You were appointed a lawyer. You were told that you can um, choose to not plea bargain. But like you're scared, you, you get right. like the shit scared out of you because they're like, well, you could risk 25 to life. That's why I called it a twisted Pascal's wager. Yeah, right? like you exactly. could you can risk 25 to life or you could just plea down to, th- you know, two years where you get out with probation yeah. after 18 months. And um, all along, if somebody said, all right, tell me, like, tell me where this where the system fucked you over. Like, how is it not the case that your rights have been protected all the way through what do you do? Like, you can't, not even I could point, like, what am I going to say? Like, systemic bias right. has caused me to, like, like there. that's not a clear argument that one could make as an individual trying to defend um, oneself. That's right. And meanwhile, there's all these other things that you don't even know, like the judge and the DA is putting pressure on the defense attorney to really 
try to persuade them to take the plea and and you and you as a good defense attorney who's really like you yeah. care about this stuff yeah. you're like dude i don't want you to risk 25 to life yeah. man like take this 18 months yeah. you'll be out in yeah. 18 months and your math might actually be right right yes <laughs> Yeah, no, so there's a nice paragraph on this exact issue. As discussed in part one, the poor, and especially the poor and black, are incarcerated at exponentially greater levels now than when Gideon was decided. If more poor people are represented by lawyers because of Gideon, arguably their trials or plea bargains are fairer than before when they did not have lawyers. Thus, the poor have simultaneously received a fairer process and more punishment. Gideon makes it more work and thus more difficult to make economic and racial critiques of criminal justice for the reasons you say. Like, it's not clear what you're supposed to complain about. Right. This is not to say people cannot and do not make those claims, but rather that Gideon makes their arguments less persuasive. It creates a formal equality between the rich and the poor because now they both have lawyers. The vast overrepresentation right. of the poor in America's prisons appears more like a narrative about personal responsibility than an indictment of criminal justice. Right. I find myself more sympathetic to to this argument after my discussion with you right now um, than I was before. At the very least, because it is it it is not at all clear how, in the case where your rights have been protected and you still get fucked over like how you could possibly right for all the reasons that we said like this asymmetry just seems like it's going to rear its head despite this and like for the very reason that butler is saying like you have nothing to say everybody you're on you're just you you know you're in the same you're in the same legal situation as somebody who's rich or you know or non-black um officially you're in that same situation but you're not you really aren't He quotes somebody else saying, it makes it easier to blame the victim than it ever was because they have officially, formally, these rights that they didn't have before, the same rights as everybody else, even though the world doesn't really work that way at all. But And can we talk about the individualist claim? Because I think this is relevant to that. So... Gideon is a narrative about individual rights rather than a plea for class-based or race-based relief. This is consistent with Wendy Brown's observation that rights discourse converts social problems into matters of individualized, dehistoricized injury and entitlement. So I guess the idea, and I wish this was fleshed out more, but it, it makes it kind of like if you have a problem it's just your problem it's your problem maybe your lawyer's problem or the cop's problem that arrested you or the judge who gave you too harsh a sentence or the and i I don't like i feel like this there's something to this but it's just not fleshed out enough yeah it it doesn't oh it, it makes it harder for people to come together and to have the kind of solidarity that that successful social movements need because it just pits it as an individual against the system rather than a group or class against the system. Yeah, right. I have highlighted as well the right after the quote that you gave. Gideon instructs us that we should respond to the problem that 80% of people charged with crimes in the U.S. are poor by trying to get a lawyer for a poor person charged with a crime. So I'm sympathetic to this. I, I think that like at the heart of it, I'm still not convinced that I want a world in which these legal rights 
aren't um, importantly given by the law, but rather, you know, if the argument is that, um, well, it's it's placated us into ignoring the systemic problems, then then I think the solution is try really hard to focus on the other problems or maybe the problems of implementing the rights or whatever. Um, as abstract and hard to implement as some of these rights are, like I, I think the Brown v. Board of Education decision, for instance, super important, right? Like it made it illegal to engage in certain kinds of discrimination. Now, whether people did still do it in a sneaky way, like that, that sucks. And like whether people find other ways to do it in a legal way, that also sucks. But, you know, the analogy, I was talking to my, to my friend Nikki about this, but like, you know, Cornell voted to outlaw um, uh, professors dating undergrads. Where like, I, I could argue that that just is going to make it like all sneaky dating, right? <laughs> like, <sexier>. sure. <laughs> it's just sexier. But, uh, but um, there's something in the communication of the norm and the at least at times strong enforcement of a specific right that I still think is good. That, that I think like Butler is talking to a particular audience about like, Hey, look at this. Stop, stop resting on your laurels at these legal victories. And let's look at this. Cause there's still a huge problem, which I, like I get yeah. a grant, but I don't know that I would have liked to see a more fleshed argument. So the strongest claim is that it's been an impediment, right? And so right. one argument for this would be social activism is a limited resource. And if you devote energy into establishing certain kinds of rights, that's energy that you could have used in a different way for some sort of protest movement or dem demonstrations. But there, it's so vague about what the alternative is. He also talks yeah. about jury nullification, and which is an interesting thing on its own, but it's certainly not <laughs> uh, something that could solve a problem of this scope. And then the Michelle Alexander thing, which is really just one of these like public goods problems where right. you're... you're you as an individual defendant have to risk, you know, 10 or 15 extra years in prison in the hopes that other people will also be willing to take that risk. <laughs> right. And Everybody, let's all go to trial. Yeah. And then you're like the only one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So like, like, like all of these other alternatives have their issues too. I mean, you could argue Black Lives Matter has done more in raising awareness about police violence than maybe some sort of law that, you know, established a right not to be, you know, searched and seizure right or something like that. Or, But I don't know if that's, like, it's hard to evaluate without, right. like, really figuring out what each of these things has, uh, has accomplished. And so right. that, that's, that's a problem in terms of, evaluating the strong claim is that we don't know exactly what the alternative would be the rights at best it's just made people feel at worst it's made people feel yeah. better about a really unjust situation than they otherwise would but but feeling worse about it doesn't solve the problem either no i know yeah and i think like i i still think that these were really important battles to be fought and won legally um, just so that they're there, so that that it is that it is clear that that um, that you 
can be defended. It is clear that certain forms of segregation are just blatantly illegal. Like I want those to be there, but I totally buy the argument that perhaps uh, like, well, no, certainly I over believed that they were effective. Like as an analogy, you might make this claim about recycling that like recycling has (laughs) made people feel better about climate change. Like, well, no, I recycle. So I'm, I'm fine. Even though that's, yeah just the no, tiniest drop in the bucket for uh right this is all the moral licensing yeah stuff exactly. right? like what he's arguing is that it's right. societal moral licensing um no we gave them the rights like we gave them the right um uh you know <laughs> in qatar which i travel to every year uh there is every everywhere there are those bins like that sep- where you separate like, like five different categories of shit and i'm told with some degree of confidence that they as a country do not recycle at all. Those are just placebo bins. They just, it all goes to the same fucking land. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I totally buy that. So that's part of the idea is, and and while you're being complacent about it, but the question is, what would we do if we weren't complacent about it? The scope of the problem is so overwhelming. Like this is something that yeah. we sort of came, like we we're having a very lively conversation about this in class. And then, you know, you bring up, well, okay, so what would be a better approach and it's very hard to even conceive of it's and that doesn't mean the argument's wrong it right. just means that that there is like you know this this is it's it's unclear whether or not there is anything else that could have been done i'm i have to get to class so i have at best five minutes left okay but i did want to talk a little a bit about um what a reader who is not say part of the progressive left and reads this would would want to be convinced of and that is maybe it's not an error that to believe that that individuals have rights and that we've maintained like we've given and maintained these rights that it is in fact um the problem is simply dis- it is disproportionately true that black people and poor people are committing the crimes and that they are personally responsible for this I I know that people reading the statistics might be tempted to conclude this. Yeah. And I wanted to like actually at least focus on this because for a little bit, because I think that objection could be the, the objection that gets people to never even buy the rest of the argument. Right. And it's not, Um, because it's not addressing that audience exactly. No, it's exactly right. This is the Yale law review special issue on, you know, this is not, (laughs) these are not people who are like, uh, black people people should just get their act together. (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but that is that is you know i don't even i don't even think it should be dismissed like i think it it should be addressed and 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 part of the argument is um that like there are all these reasons why you might be led to a life of crime um in these particular communities which obviously i think people like us will buy but then there's there's other evidence that i think you can point to that look you can't i don't know here's one example if you're a white collar criminal in the suburbs, it, there is no way that getting pulled over and searching your car is going to get you convicted, right? Like it is low hanging fruit to police areas in which the crimes are holding marijuana. Right. And so th- like there are all sorts of reasons why, um, why similar rates of criminal behavior might get completely disproportionately um, uh, represented in the criminal justice system. Now, I think between that and the the inherent problems with living in fucked up communities, 
um, and growing up in a p- poor or like otherwise fucked up community might lead you to crime. And then the inherent asymmetry in the ways in which, you know, p- policing works, the war on drugs, as Butler alludes to, right? Hopefully that is convincing enough to say that this is not, that you don't act, that people don't actually believe that it's inherent to poor people. <laughs> and, and really do you're, it is, it is all fucking dominoes from the point where you get arrested for the first time and convicted yes. for the first time. Cause once that happens, right. You are screwed in ways that I don't think anybody who doesn't know someone very close to them who has had that happen to them or had it happen to themselves knows the ways in which, you know, a a felon, convicted felon is screwed for the rest of their lives in this system. I mean, so here's one thing just to like an alternative that I can off the top of my head. Let's say you are committed to addressing this problem and and one way you could do it is to try to work for uh, a law firm that either defends poor defendants or that tries to establish some sort of right against no-knock raids or something like that or something that uh, unfairly targets poor people and, and black people. So that would be one approach. And another approach might be to work with prisoners uh, to provide dro- job training and opportunities once they get out of prison maybe if you read this you're more convinced that you should do these kind of more offbeat approaches that that try to help people in in ways that don't establish some sort of principle or right but rather actually helps people do get something like get jobs or ban the box yeah something where it'll actually have an effect directly not indirectly through this establishing a right but directly um you are providing job training you're providing good halfway houses and transportation to interviews and transportation to parole officers and you know whatever the things that you have to do to try to minimize uh rates of recidivism even providing the right clothing yeah like to a poor ex-con for for an interview yeah, there's all sorts of ways. And I think there are also like maybe, you know, legal solutions that need to be um, pursued about, I mean, I think you're on board with this, right? Like just about the super fucking vindictive way in which we prevent ex-cons from getting from jobs, getting jobs yeah. and even, some, you know, even voting and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think there could be there could be laws that are specific enough that they would make a difference that we could fight for. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, certainly some rights have a great effect right away, like, you know, right for same-sex people to marry. I know a lot of people who are married that couldn't get married yeah. before. Right. Like, That's so- a very specific, like, yeah. Well, I, Tamler, to sum up, because I have to go, cannot wait until I finally am awarded the right to not have been born. <laughs> I'm on Patreon. <laughs> what, uh, the right to not have been born would have been would have been oh, good have 43 been years ago. Yeah. yeah, not to have been born. Yeah. It would have been a great right to have 43 years ago. Yeah, well, your parents fucked that up. You should see them in court. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'd like to pursue this a little bit more, hopefully at some further episode, because I feel like there's more to talk about. So, uh, But yeah, this was great. And um, yeah. join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. The greatest boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain.